one of the fears i have is that people begin to panic hmm. and respond with unnecessary aggression to their loss of power within the community you know when paul said uh, he becomes all things to all people one of the things he said was to the weak i became weak mm-hmm. and i think weakness is one of the ways by which we can present the glory of the gospel because there is a there is a truth about christianity which is so convincing so real that we don't have to be afraid you know i, I what i fear is that when people see their power going they are hitting back they are bitter My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as global ambassador and ministry director for Langham. Today, we go to the beautiful island nation of Sri Lanka as Chris talks with Ajit Fernando. It's a fun conversation between two dear friends and respected theologians about life, lessons gleaned from decades of ministry, and reflections on the church in Sri Lanka and around the world. Ajit is known internationally as a gifted Bible teacher. He's spoken at Urbana, Lausanne gatherings, and in congregations around the world. He's a prolific writer, and his Bible study books and commentaries have impacted countless lives. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright, and today we're heading to South Asia, to the beautiful island of Sri Lanka, and indeed to its capital city, Colombo where it's my privilege and a very great pleasure to introduce you to an old friend and a very dear brother, Ajit Fernando. Welcome, Ajit. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be talking to you. Now, Ajit uh, is the teaching director and indeed the former national director for Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. And that's a ministry that he has led for some 35 years But as well as his commitment to Youth for Christ uh, and indeed to Sri Lanka there, he is well known. The name Ajit Fernando is well known internationally, giving Bible teaching at Urbana and many other international conventions and indeed the uh, Lausanne gatherings and churches all around the world. He's the author of uh, at least 20 books and possibly more. I've tried to count them, uh, including his latest book on discipling in a multicultural world. 
And as I said, he lives there in Colombo, in Sri Lanka, with his wife, Nelun. And they have two adult children, both of whom are married, with four grandkids. Uh, and they are there too in Sri Lanka and serving the Lord. So, Ajit, let's, let's begin with yourself. Why don't you tell us, first of all, a bit about yourself, your background, perhaps how God brought you to faith in Christ and how he prepared you for the ministry that you've given your life to. Well, I've come, uh, I come from a Christian family. Uh, my mother is a, a convert from Buddhism in her teens. Uh, she, her mother came to Christ and then she followed. And uh, she is actually our spiritual mother in many ways. We have five in our family and all five are living for Christ. And we all owe our mother uh, mm. the, because she taught us the scriptures and so we are very grateful to her. She's the one who led me to Christ when the time came, when I needed to make a decision to give my life to Christ. Uh, the, the, it was my mother who did that for me. What, what so, age were you at that time? Do you remember? About, about 14 years. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and so I have been uh, involved with two, actually two entities all my life. Well, all my uh, young and adult life. Youth for Christ on the one hand, I was a youth in Youth for Christ, but also my church. Uh, I belong to the Methodist Church and we were very active. Even now we are very active in our church. So these two have been responsible for my nurture. Mm. Uh, my father was a, uh, he was a, a lay person, uh, but also a solid Christian uh, who read a lot introduced me to books, introduced me to John Stott, for example. Okay. Uh, and uh, he, uh, so we learned a lot about uh, working, hard work, and things like that from my father. Mm. And he introduced you to John Stott, uh, what, uh, not physically at first, but through his books, was that? Through his books, yeah. He, mm. he would get uh, John Stott's books, and I, ha I used to go to his library and read them. Mm. That's amazing. So you had a, a, a wonderful nurture in the Christian faith through your parents and through your church and through Youth for Christ. It's, it's a marvelous privilege, isn't it, to have been brought up with that Christian upbringing. It sort of feeds your soul and, and gets the Bible into your blood, really. Yes, yes. Mm, that's wonderful. Well, why don't you take us to your beloved Sri Lanka? And obviously, many of our listeners will not know a lot about it, uh, perhaps aware that it's there. Some people say it's a little bit like a teardrop off the uh, bottom right-hand corner of, of India. Uh, and I, I, I looked this up. It's actually about the same size as my home country, which is Ireland. Uh, and yet Sri Lanka has a population of 21 million approximately, whereas Ireland is only about 5 million. So uh, it's an amazing difference. It used to be called Ceylon, didn't it, in, in the old days? Perhaps yeah, you could give right. us something of a, a bird's eye view of, of the history of, of your country. Yeah, the, the foreigners who ruled us gave us the name Ceylon, mm -hmm. but we always called it Lanka or Sri mm -hmm. Lanka. Sri Lanka is resplendent or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we, uh, we, we are just off the tip of India, about 20 miles at the closest spot. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, we are quite uh, crowded, but most of our people are rural. We have only one big city, Colombo. Mm -hmm. And uh, still most of the people are rural. And uh, it's basically a Buddhist country. Buddhism is a national religion. 
uh, about 70% of our population is Buddhist, about uh, 11 or 12% is Hindu, about, about 10% is Muslim, and 8% are Christian, most of whom are Catholics. Mm. And there has been a, a troubled history over over many years, and, and that is partly ethnic. And I wonder why is it that there are these two major ethnic groups uh, and these two languages, because you have uh, Sinhala and Tamil. Uh, can you tell us why that is? How did that come about in one island to have two ethnic communities of that, that nature? Both, both races actually has, have their roots in India. But India being so close, people have come in. Now, as to who came first and who is the, <laughs> those things are, are causes of a lot of uh, uh, ill will and debate and all of that. Uh, but we've been living together for many, many years. So we are both Sri Lankan. Uh, so that is one of the big issues uh, because the people are trying to define what Sri Lankan means uh, through narrower uh, lenses rather than the fact that those who have grown up here are Sri Lankan. Mm. Uh, so the, the Tamil majority, minority, uh, they are about 15% of the population. And uh, they have been uh, asking for rights. And uh, when they didn't get what they wanted, actually there were a lot of uh, treaties and agreements which were never followed through whenever one party uh, one ruling party presented an agreement. Uh, the other people said it's betrayal, mm. and and so it never happened. And finally, they went to war. Mm. So we had this terrible war. It was a very very bad war. Mm. Uh, no one really knows exactly how many people were killed, mm. but it's well over a hundred thousand, mm. and um, it went on for about thirty years. Mm. But the war is over. But the problems are not resolved yet. Mm. So we are hoping that the, the process of reconciliation and some sort of uh, agreement uh, will, will take place. At the moment, prospects are not very positive about mm. that. Yes, I, I think uh, many of us are aware that there was that war uh, in Sri Lanka for about 30 years and it was very, very vicious. And uh, coming as, as I do from, from Ireland, of course, we had uh, that uh, more or less the same length for about 30 years between 1968 and 1998. Uh, not quite civil war, but violence and troubles and, and, and so on in Ireland. So uh, these things can be horrible and they leave, they leave a lasting legacy even after a peace agreement uh, as you say, it doesn't mean that uh, the conflict at a mental and cultural uh, level has ended. Uh, that continues. So that that legacy is still there? Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's, it, it just keeps simmering always and underground and then it comes out. People are afraid to talk about it. They don't like to talk about it for fear of uh, conflict, but it's always there inside. Mm. Yeah. Now... As we are talking uh, now in, in, in our recording of this podcast, it is Holy Week. Uh, so we are coming quite close to Easter. And there is a particularly uh, horrible memory, I'm sure, for all of you in Sri Lanka there of Easter Day 2019, when uh, there were the bombings of three churches and some hotels in, in Sri Lanka. But that was by Islamist terrorists, which many of us find surprising. Uh, that that was done from a community which is, as you say, 
relatively smaller in, in Sri Lankan terms. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Um, Sri Lanka, the Muslims in Sri Lanka have been uh, in Sri Lanka maybe for about a thousand years. Hmm. And we have, uh, they are by and large a peaceful, friendly minority. Uh, our, our immediate neighbors are Muslims and we are very good friends. They are very good neighbors to us. Mm. And so we've lived together for so many years. And uh, then suddenly, well, there have been some simmerings because of the influence of uh, IS, IS, ISIS. And uh, and then suddenly this came and it it it's a, it was a shock to all of us. Mm. Yes. What was the church's response to to it? Because obviously it was a massive blow, and um, including some people who we know who either were killed or who had friends who were, and so on. I mean, it, it was a devastating blow. So uh, how have the churches responded to that? Yeah. It was uh, primarily the Catholic. There were two Catholic churches where people died, and one. A charismatic church uh, where there was another bomb and then of course about uh, three or four uh, hotels but um, the Catholic Church the initial response of the Catholic Church was a shock to everybody because they urged the people not to retaliate not to attack Muslim homes and things like that in in uh, uh, Catholic majority areas Mm -hmm. There was a little, little of that which the press tried, uh, foreign press tried to make a big deal out of, but it was remarkably restrained response. Mm -hmm. So, so the idea of uh, Christ and the whole business of forgiveness was well demonstrated mm -hmm. in the response mm -hmm. of the church. Yeah, that in itself is, one has to say, part of the fruit of the gospel, isn't it? Oh yes. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, forgiveness is such a such a primary part of uh, of Christianity, and uh, without forgiveness in a country that has been wracked by violence for so long, there is no hope mm -hmm. of uh, real reconciliation. And it's a similar story to what one hears in other parts of the world. I mean, I remember in in Egypt, for example, when some Coptic Christians uh, yes. were beheaded in Libya. And the response of the Christian church there was remarkably restrained on the whole. And indeed, the mother of one of the terrorists prayed for the forgiveness of those who had killed her son. Yes. So, and you, you feel on, only the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in someone's heart can actually do what he did, which is to pray God's forgiveness for those who harm and persecute and kill us. Yeah, that's mm. right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell tell us a little bit more about the, the complexion of the Christian church then in Sri Lanka. You mentioned that those churches were uh, Catholic churches, but uh, there are other other Christian denominations. You said yourself that you're a Methodist. So tell us something about the church there and the denominations, but also whether the church is growing and, and how it is coping with not just the, the war and the, the violence, but also COVID and such like things. Well, uh, the the church... Uh, when when we got independence, uh, we had a much higher percentage of Christians. Uh, that was in 1948. And everyone was very embarrassed uh, by our heritage of being the religion of the rulers. Mm. And, uh, and consequently, uh, a lot of people uh, left the faith. People who had joined, for example, to get jobs in Christian schools, went back 
to their former religion mm. and um, there was a steady decline in the number of christians especially protestants uh, for about 30 years uh, and um, uh, during this time uh, i suppose because of the the uh, embarrassment of our colonial heritage a lot of people uh, stop talking about things like the uniqueness of christ and all of that because that was very embarrassing um, liberal theology became very popular uh, and the main churches were ma the so called mainline churches mm. but uh, in the 80s we began to see a change and uh, and that has been growing in influence for one thing the uh, charismatic churches came into being and became more popular there were charismatic churches even before but they they began to grow and um, and within the mainline churches too the evangelical witness became much stronger for example in our church the methodist church there was a evangelism committee that worked somewhat independently of the rest of the denomination and they planted churches all over the country mm. and like uh, like other denominations they were persecuted churches were burned workers were assaulted but uh, the methodist uh, population has grown mm. in the last uh, last say 25 years it has grown from about uh, 25000 to about uh, 35 to 38000 mm. uh, so and a lot of that growth has been through conversion at a time when a lot of people left the country because of the war a lot of christians left the country yeah that's fairly so, common too isn't it yes when, yeah, in yeah. war time christians leave sadly yeah, yeah very sad yeah. yeah so so this has been a very encouraging feature there has been growth uh, within the church yeah mm. that's good but tell us then about your work with youth for christ i'd love to hear a little bit about uh what that is what uh, the, obviously the clue is in the name <laughs> yeah. but what exactly is it that you do and what is your leadership in youth for christ involved over these years yeah well uh, yfc uh, uh, in in the early years we were sort of like a movement for the church where young people could come but very soon the church developed its own uh youth ministries and our relationship was that we encourage most of our staff to have as their primary volunteer service their, their church so a lot of our staff are helping the youth work in their churches but we took a decision about uh, 40 years ago 35 years ago that we are going to focus on the unchurched youth so that's what we've been doing uh, there has been what you might call a dual emphasis of uh, evangelizing unchurched youth making contact with them and finding all sorts of ways to try and make contact and preach the gospel mm. and discipling strong emphasis on discipling mm. and then trying to send them into the church uh, so for example i think we have uh, we are trying to make a list of all the pastors who have gone from our ministry mm. uh, and we at the moment uh, you know we have uh, over 90 maybe wow. 95 people uh, which is quite good for a small country like sri lanka yeah and uh, and so and and a lot of people have gone into other leadership positions in churches and groups so so that's been our ministry all these years we are working with unreached people it's getting more and more difficult now because uh, 
evangelizing youth is considered uh, unethical mm-hmm. and uh, and so we have to be very careful very wise mm-hmm. uh, no publicity at all of our work and things like that mm-hmm. so so that's that so uh, that's that's youth for christ my uh, i mean i'm not a powerful evangelist or anything like that mm-hmm. but uh, my primary gift has been uh, bible teaching so what i did as leader for 35 years was look after the staff Uh, teach them the scriptures mm-hmm. and let them fly give them the space yes to do all the crazy things uh, youth ministries uh, a, a lot of crazy people for <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and i'm i'm not uh, like that <laughs> but yes. uh, but we can give space for people so yeah. that's what i did for 35 years then uh, it uh, the, as the ministry began to grow and grow and grow i realized that my my gifts Uh, now need to be uh, channeled elsewhere in the sense that i d- i don't think i'm qualified now to lead a movement like this so i handed over 10 years ago and for 10 years now i have been mentoring mm. uh, a lot of uh, youth for christ people i'm mean, not a lot a few youth for christ mm-hmm. staff uh, but also young pastors uh, heads of organizations young heads of organizations mm. so that's what i do now Yes, I, I I think that's it's very obvious from what I know of you and what I read in your newsletters that mentoring and counseling younger leaders is obviously a, a, a both a gift and a calling and something that you're very passionately committed to doing, and I I just wonder why and and how do you go about that and how does it work when you are seeking to encourage and disciple and mentor those younger leaders tell us a bit about that because it's obviously a very significant part of your ministry yeah. well actually uh, the discipling part i do in my church i have a small group mm-hmm. of uh, people that i try to disciple so that's uh, slightly different the mentoring part is with people who are already mature christians okay so we, we don't really uh, spend uh, weekly usually it's about once a week once a month or maybe once in two months and we just chat we chat for uh sometimes 2 3 4 hours mm. but we meet only once a month or once in two months so it's uh, you know we had a lot to catch up on mm. um the uh, some i do bible studies with but the others is just chatting praying talking about family life Mm. about their personal life and things like that with the with the youth for christ staff i don't talk much about ministry because I, uh, i'm not any more in the leadership of the ministry mm. i'm uh, i'm a member of staff yeah we we talk mostly about our married lives and things like yeah. that so they're not accountable to you in the same way as they would have been when you were the, the leader in, in that in no. that sense so it's no. it's a more personal pastoral relationship yes yes, yes. that's good uh, but uh, the reason i Uh, in fact the reason why i reduced my foreign travel after stepping down when i thought i could increase i reduced it because i realized that there are so many young workers who are not cared for mm-hmm. that culture i don't know what has happened but it's mm-hmm. a, it's I, i call it the scandal of the church in sri lanka and it's not only sri lanka it's all over the world i think mm-hmm. where young workers are not really cared for and so then i decided that i'm going to spend more time doing that than uh, with my travel yes I, you and i uh, served together in the lausanne 
Congress, the third Lausanne Congress in Cape Town in in 2010. uh, And we were on the statement team together. And one of the things that is is in that statement is relevant to what we're talking about right now, which is the importance of uh, developing well-discipled and Christ-like leaders. And and I just wonder whether this this, uh, still echoes with you. There's a a section in the Cape Town Commitment, which we all know, uh, says this, that the rapid growth of the church in so many places remains shallow and vulnerable, partly because of the lack of discipled leaders and partly because so many leaders use their positions for worldly power or arrogant status or personal enrichment And as a result, God's people suffer, Christ is dishonoured, and gospel mission is undermined. Uh, End of quote. Uh, I presume you would still echo those words and see some part of your ministry as trying to stand against that that gap and that uh, damage within the church. Yes, I would say that uh, it's a major problem. I think it's still a problem. Uh, We have young people who are very... Um, very passionate for God, for gospel, but thank, because they don't have many models, uh, there is this problem of developing a wrong model. And I think there is also a, a real problem that we are having of a new kind of aspiration that younger workers have, which is uh, got, the model is uh, got from the television evangelists, uh, many of whom are in Africa, in India, South India has a lot of them, uh, and uh, it's fueled by the prosperity gospel, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a lot of power, and this is very dangerous. So trying to present an alternative to this is, I think, one of the great needs of our church. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, John Stott, uh, that was one of the big influences he had on me, that he gave us an od- another model mm-hmm. of what a leader is like. Mm, yes, and we want to go there shortly to talk a little bit about your connection with John Stott uh, and, and what you learned from him. And that is certainly one. I think all of us have learned that from him, uh, the, 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 the essentially Christ-like nature of, of humble, godly leadership, which is not seeking status and, uh, and so on. One of the other things that I've noticed just in your, uh, both your writings and also in, in your newsletter, which I'm always d- delighted to receive, is a, a very practical commitment as well, uh, not just to head knowledge and teaching people the Bible and so on, but also to uh, a strong commitment to the poor and the needy uh, and those who are deprived in one way or another. For example, I read in your uh, newsletter back in October that and I quote, more and more we are finding both in the church and in Youth for Christ that helping youth from poor backgrounds with their educational and vocational advancement is a key aspect of discipling them. Parents sometimes do not give much of a push because of the cost of education and they encourage their children to go to work instead. And then you refer to government centres of vocational training and the role that Youth for Christ can play in, in helping people. So you see this also as an integral part of what it means to be on mission in that context? Uh, definitely. I mean, I have worked with the poor in my 45 years of ministry. Uh, about 40 years or 38 years has been primarily with the poor. And um, we, we struggle with all sorts of challenges in discipling them. This is an aspect of discipling. You know, vocation is an aspect of obedience to Christ. Mm -hmm. And so we have to think very seriously 
about how we can disciple them in such a way that they find a place in society and can be witnesses for him in society. So vocational guidance is a very important thing. Education, first education, uh, uh, trying to get them to study because they are not motivated. Their uh, environments are not uh, conducive to study. For example, during the war, all our youth, for, no, almost all our Youth for Christ officers were study halls mm -hmm. uh, in the night. Um, it's curfew time, so you can't get out. And the homes are totally unsuitable because they're so small. They can't, uh, they, they, they can't study in their homes. So they come to the YFC office and part of their discipling is for them to study. Mm. So we have tables and they study uh, in the evening. And then from, you, uh, you, from office, they might go home, have their breakfast and then go to school. That's, that's, that sounds so encouraging because in many ways it, it reminds me of John Stott because he was so committed to believing that uh, Christian discipleship was for every area of life, including vocational work in the world, not just uh, in the church with uh, pastors and missionaries and so on, uh, but that every vocation, every calling that was honest and godly could be a place of serving Christ as one of his disciples. So it's interesting that you share that, that vision and that commitment. Yeah, yeah, we are very much committed to that. My wife is also very much committed to that. She coordinates the tutorial work that the young people in our church go to. So, yeah, we are we are very much committed to that. Yes. So it's it's not just a case of getting these young people to heaven when they die. It's getting them into something useful and serviceable and godly and contributing to society while they live. Yes. I think uh, actually recently we have sense this more and more because there are so many stories being spread about Christians, about us buying people and all sorts of things. Uh, and um, it's so important for our people to go inside, go inside our communities. We tend to uh, protect once, uh, some, as a pastor once told me, once a person becomes a Christian, he becomes a bad neighbor. Mm. You know? Oh dear, that's terrible. Uh, yeah, because uh, they are spending all their time with their Christian friends and they're not going into society. So this is a very uh, important thing to proactively work on them because we like to keep them with us and we have to keep them. Actually, people from really very, very tough backgrounds have to be protected for a time. Hmm. And then they can be, uh, but but we should they should never lose their contact hmm. with their uh, neighbors and their friends and things like yeah. that. That's such a sad thing that when somebody becomes a Christian, they become a bad neighbor, isn't it? I mean, it, it ought to be the opposite. Really. Yes. When, if we were taking Jesus seriously, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, it should make you a better neighbor. I, I heard a, a similar saying, somebody once said that, uh, that they discovered that what, one of the major reasons why people become Christians is because they know another Christian. And a major reason why people do not become Christians is because they know a Christian, <laughs> which yes. is more scary. Now, Actually, I, uh, I did a Bible study two weeks ago in our church. Uh, most of the members of our church are from other faiths. Uh, and I asked each one in the Bible study group, how did you come to church? How did you come to Christ? And almost every one of them said, a friend told mm -hmm. me. A friend brought me to church. So that's the power of friendship. It is. 
and it's a power of friendship and you have written on friendship and I want to come to your books shortly and, and talk about them because I know that's one of the themes of your writing. But just before we, we leave the church as such, I, I, I'd like to, to hear you talk a bit about the global church because obviously you yourself have an international stature and, and voice, uh, but you stayed rooted there in Sri Lanka. Um, and I just wonder what you think of as your primary or most urgent message for the church, especially the church in the West. Um, now, you, you've written this, uh, and it's it's written in a small book ab- about John Stott, in fact, um, uh, and I'm quoting now that you've written, I have a great fear for the church. The West is fast becoming an unreached region. The Bible and history show that suffering is an essential ingredient in reaching unreached people. So will the loss of a theology of suffering lead the Western church to become ineffective in evangelism? I wonder whether you would want to expand on that or answer your own question or any other lessons that you think we in the West need to hear from the voices of churches in a place like your countries, from Sri Lanka. I think think one of the important things to remember is that the West, uh, the Christians were a majority Uh, in the West for a long time. And so they were privileged. And and they had their way. The government was uh, serving, uh, in some ways serving the church almost, you know. Mm -hmm. And that has changed. And uh, one of the fears I have is that people begin to panic Mm -hmm. and respond with unnecessary aggression to their loss of power within the community. You know, when Paul said uh, he becomes all things to all people, one of the things he said was, to the weak, I became weak. Mm-hmm. And I think weakness is one of the ways by which we can present the glory of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Because there is, a, there is a truth about Christianity which is so convincing, so real, that we don't have to be afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I what I fear is that when people see their power going, they are hitting back, they are bitter. So Christians, especially evangelical Christians, sadly, are getting the, 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 the name of being bitter, angry people. But there is the confidence in truth that gives us freedom in spite of all the attacks that come to us, to speak winsomely about the gospel. And I think that is the way we are. the West is going to be reached again. Mm-hmm. The West was losing a ground. The church was losing ground. And uh, we were very concerned. But I think if history shows us any lessons, one of the lessons is that suffering can be an impetus to growth. And this could happen in the West as the Christians uh, fundamentalism, as it has got to be become known now, is an expression of insecurity. When you're insecure, you attack the enemy. When we are secure about our truth, we respond to them lovingly, compassionately. And in that way, I think we can have a powerful witness for Christ. So I think... Do you think that power, and especially political power or social power, 
has become an idolatry of evangelicalism in the West? Uh, possibly. Uh, I mean, the history of the church shows that whenever the church had power, God sometimes used the power uh, for his glory. But often uh, the power corrupt, corrupted the church. Mm. And, uh, and I mean, even the great, like people like Chrysostom, the great Bible expositor, absolutely refused to use his power. Uh, or he used it to be countercultural, to go against uh, the emperor, to speak against the emperor. And, and so I think uh, the power of the gospel is something else. It's not, it's not something that is dependent on earthly structures. It can use earthly structures, but it's not dependent on mm. earthly structures. Exactly. And that, I think, is so important that the church doesn't need the scaffolding of political power and privilege in order to be the church and to bear witness in society for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so I think that's a very important voice that we, that we need to hear from yourself and from others uh, into the Western church, I'm sure. And of course, as you said earlier, uh, in the history of Sri Lanka itself, the colonial power was the British Empire uh, at the time. And when that came to an end uh, in 1948, there was, in, in a sense, a loss to the church because it lost that position of privilege. And those who had benefited from the privilege or were using a Christian veneer simply to, for the sake of privilege disappeared and, and, the, and the church lost uh, its edge until, as you say, that uh, came back through the Holy Spirit doing other things in other ways. So the, the lesson of colonialism, I think, uh, speaks into that too, as indeed the history of Christendom as a whole. But, but I think there's something that we have to remember, and that is in the independent struggles, uh, one of the fuels for independent struggles was Christianity. Mm -hmm. Many of the freedom fighters were educated in Christian schools. There were many missionaries, not all, but there were many missionaries who spoke up on behalf of the, 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 the right of the country to rule themselves. Christianity gave people a strong sense of identity, which was equality, mm -hmm. uh, which was not uh, 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 part of the colonial ethos. There was always the sense that they're uh, Western. If you are to be cultured, you are Westerner. And things like that. But Christianity presented equality. So in the background of our freedom struggle, I think Christianity had a very important part to play. That, that's an important historical thing to, to remember and to know because it's often forgotten, especially by, by the more secular history of colonialism, which seems nothing good there uh, at all. Ajit, let's, let's come to your books. Uh, obviously, uh, God has given you a ministry of writing um, alongside your other ministry. And when I looked at your author page on Amazon, I counted at least 20 books, but you may tell me there's more. I, I do remember that when John Stott was asked how many books he had written, he always refused to say because he thought counting them was a bit like David uh, in the census. You know, it was a, <laughs> a bad thing to do. But I, I looked at the variety of your topics and you cover things like suffering, spiritual living in the secular world, hell, love, friendship, servant ministry, family life, other faiths. But what I, what I see in common in all of this is that they all, from what I read about them, they all have a solid biblical base. That is, you're seeking to address these issues from a biblical foundation. Would I be right in, in that assessment? 
yes, uh, that would be true. Yeah, every uh, and and that's another area where John Stott was an example to me, because he he wrote on issues uh, that uh, out of a biblical base. But the the I chose the issues all based on the challenges the church in Sri Lanka face. So I would take a season of preaching on a certain topic. I I do a lot of preaching to pastors and Christian leaders. So I would I would teach on that, and then that would come out in a book. So in my early years. the big issue was the uniqueness of christ because that was something that was being challenged in the church mm-hmm. so my early books focused on that topic and on the need for the church to go out and preach the gospel because we were basically an urban church so one of the books i wrote uh, sharing the truth in love was we have to go out we have to go and take the gospel out but once the people went out we we may have had a little part in Uh, in helping people to go out we had conferences that talked about the missionary need in the country and things like that people were saying they were they would tell me you sent us out now you have to equip us <laughs> you, uh, because we are we have gone out and mm. we are feeling uh, we are feeling lonely mm. so all the last few books that i have written have been to equip the workers mm. equip people uh with issues that they are facing i just the latest thing i have written a small little booklet is on is it god's will for everyone to be wealthy because that's an issue that we are facing mm-hmm. so all these are all issues that have come up in the church which uh, which i uh, i like to address in my books it sounds very much like what the apostle paul says in uh, his word to the ephesian elders in the book of acts where he says i did not hesitate to teach you whatever was needful for you uh, house to house and in public so paul was obviously aware of the issues that the people were facing and then he would address the scriptures to those issues so it, it there's those two wonderful verses there in in acts 20 verse uh, 20 he says uh, it's about preaching everything needful and verse 27 it's the whole counsel of god so he's bringing the whole will of god the whole plan of god into connection with day-to-day everyday issues that the church were facing and it sounds like you're very much walking in the same footsteps well i hope so <laughs> <laughs> now would you have any book that you reckon is your favorite or your most important or most significant uh there are two favorites i think oh well all of them i remember asking leon morris when he was uh, the same question and he said what's your f- i asked him what's your favorite book and he said the one i'm writing at the moment uh <laughs> at any time no. at any time <laughs> yeah um but um uh, before i started my ministry i was a student at fuller seminary doing graduate studies in new testament and uh, i did a careful study of the book of acts and i thought i must uh, try and apply this in our ministry in youth for christ because i was going to lead a youth uh, a youth uh, an evangelistic organization so i started teaching acts the moment i went back home and um, and i thought to myself i will write a book on acts one day mm-hmm. so that uh, that uh, was fulfilled uh, about 20 years later uh when i wrote uh, the niv application commentary on act so that's very special to me yes that's wonderful and and indeed as well as your books on issues you you have done several uh commentaries you that commentary on acts in the niv act series and also you've written on ephesians 
And I think my favourite, and perhaps I don't know whether it's your largest book, but it is a pretty big book, uh, your commentary on Deuteronomy, your exposition of the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, I have done some of that, yeah. <laughs> and, and a reason why that was my one of my favourites is that, uh, and this is a kind of a personal note from me, just interjected into the podcast, is that I, I taught, of course, at the Union Biblical Seminary in Pune in India for some five years in the 1980s. Um, and uh, one of the topics I taught then was Pentateuch, which, of course, included Deuteronomy. And there were a number of, of Sri Lankan students uh, at UBS in those days. Yeah. Uh, and some of them I know that you will know. And interestingly, they have all gone on into the kind of Christian ministry, which I think Deuteronomy advocates, which is care for the poor, the needy, uh, advocacy work, and so on. People like Priti Viraj, who has done dental work in Africa, but is now engaged in disaster relief and post-war response. Uh, Roshan Mendes, uh, who works with the Lanka Evangelical Alliance for Development Services, and uh, Godfrey Yogaraja, uh, who is with the World Evangelical Alliance in their Religious Liberty uh, Department, and now, in fact, on their International Council. So these are all Sri Lankan brothers who I knew as students, and doubtless you probably did too, and yeah, actually, they're also serving the Lord. I, actually, uh, I'm very proud to say <laughs> that the, this, uh, out of the three, the, the last two uh, met Christ in Youth for Christ, and they were discipled in Youth for Christ. Isn't that wonderful? It, isn't yeah. it, it, it's always so good to hear the fruit of our work and what the Lord does when you sow seeds and he makes them blossom in, in all kinds of ways. Ajit, as we as we begin to draw to a close, I, I'm just wondering if there's a if there's anything else you want to tell us, but also just uh, what's next for you and your ministry, and uh, how we can pray for you and Nalan and and your family. Uh, well, I think the the major struggle I have I'm now 72 years old, <laughs> and uh, I, I seem to think when I make up my schedule, uh, I do it as one who is in his 50s. So I know the feeling. I, I know the feeling. <laughs> I have all these appointments and I take speaking engagements. And then when I have to prepare, I have a real struggle. So sometimes I'm up all night working on a message for the next day. Uh, mm. Not what I recommend to preachers, but this is what I have uh, yeah. given my weaknesses. This yeah. is one of the things that I have had to live with. Um, so I, uh, I, I would just like to encourage the church in Sri Lanka in whatever way I can for the rest of my life. I'm asking mm -hmm. God to give me at least another eight years of active ministry. More, If he gives me more, I'll be happy. So I'm uh, going and speaking at pastors' gatherings, uh, doing seminars with pastors and things like that. But mentoring is one of my main roles. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I would like to have an influence on Youth for Christ, the leader, the new leader who has been now leader for 10 years, uh, is one of the people I mentor, and he's doing a very good job. Things that I could never have done, he's doing now. Good. So, uh, so that's one of the things. I have a few books that I have still in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is on commitment to community. Uh, I have felt that uh, commitment is one of the hardest features about Christianity that people in the 21st century uh, need to accept. Uh, they find it very difficult to accept. Uh, we are living in a very consumerist world and the people look at community using consumerist categories. So I would like to do something. I've been thinking about this for a long time. 
So I would like to do that. If God gives me the strength, I would like to write a book on, on that. I would like also to write a book on um, secrets of long-term freshness in ministry. Uh, and so that is something that I'm, uh, that I would like to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and then one, one other book, I don't know whether I'll ever do this. Uh, John, Star, uh, John Wesley is one of my heroes, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as a Methodist. Uh, I, I was attracted to him because of his truth emphasis, arguing for the truth. And more than that, because he worked with the poor and he mm -hmm. saw poor people emerge. And my work also has been with the poor. So I have been reading everything that John Wesley has written and I'm uh -huh. compiling a quote book. I have thousands of quotations now. I don't mm -hmm. know whether I'll ever finish this, but I am working on that. Please, please do. That sounds a marvellous book. I, I'd, I'd love to get hold of that. Uh, the quotations of John Stott and the quotations of John Wesley, I think they would go very well together, <laughs> an, an Anglican and a Methodist uh, in, in conversation. I've been talking here with uh, Ajit Fernando, and we've been sharing uh, our experiences and life, our friendship with John Stott, and our support and encouragement for the Langham Partnership Ministries. So thank you, Ajit, and we will certainly continue to pray for you and for Sri Lanka. Thank you. Thank you. It has been really, really good to talk to you. That's it for today's episode. Praise God for leaders like Ajit in the global church and how they minister to and disciple believers in other parts of the world, like me and you. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless. <music>